Good morning, Calvary. That includes you. We have good news for all people. We're in a study in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, I'm glad that you're here. Some of you are back after Christmas, and uh, that's really great to see you. Me too, I'm back. So here we are. Um, how was Christmas? Was it good? Okay. So we're at, okay, thank you. <laughs> that's because you work here, and that's, uh, it, yeah. All right, if you have a Bible, let's open it. We're jumping back into the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it's the best thing we can do is open the Bible and try to understand it. So the Gospel of Luke is a New Testament book. It's one of the first four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, are all the opening books of the New Testament. Each of those books is an account of the life of Jesus. If you're new to the Bible and new to church, this is a great place to start reading in 2023. Read the stories of the life of Jesus, the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We are studying Luke. We're about halfway through. And today we come to what I think is the most famous, if not one of the most important, they're all important, of course, parables of Jesus in Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15, and in something of a tragedy, we're going to do it in one week. We're going to try to see the picture of Luke chapter 15 and what Jesus is telling, and in order for us to do that, I, I want to give you a couple factoids first. First is that there are three major movements in the gospel of Luke. The first goes from chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 9 and verse 50, and it describes the birth and early ministry and the Galilean ministry of Jesus through chapter 9, verse 50. And then Luke chapter 9, verse 51 says, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem, and that is a marker in the gospel of Luke that at chapter 9, verse 51, we're going to Jerusalem. And so from that point until chapter 19 and verse 28, or 27, Jesus is around Jerusalem in what is called the Judean ministry. It's here that he teaches in these 10 chapters 20 parables. And in the middle of that section is Luke 15. And then the final section from the end of chapter 19 to the end of the gospel is the end of Jesus' life, his last weeks, his passion, his death, his burial, his resurrection. So if you're thinking about the gospel of Luke, you know you're going to 9 and verse 27. I'm sorry, verse 50, and then all the way to chapter 19, verse 27, and then the end, and then you have the three sections. Luke chapter 15 is the center of the middle section. It's the pinnacle of all the parables of Jesus. 
it's significant because if you think of the flow of Luke, you have the birth of Jesus, his life, his ministry in Galilee, then his ministry in Judea around Jerusalem. With this episode in chapter 15, and then you know how the story ends, right? The story ends with a great conflict and Jesus going to the cross and dying because of the opposition that he faced. Well, Luke chapter 15 is describing this opposition, an opposition which sort of still exists to this day. And Luke chapter 15 is going to tell three parables, in a sense, as one story. There is a parable of a sheep that is lost. It's not a bad parable. Thank you. <laughs> there, are, there are 100 sheep and one is lost. And the second brief episode is about 10 coins. And there's a woman in the house who's lost a coin. And um, she sweeps the house and lights a little lamp until she finds that coin. And the, the last parable is the parable of the prodigal son who is lost. We're going to spend most of our time there. The point of these is out of the context of the first two verses. So let's look at those. In the first two verses, we read, Now, tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. We aren't in that context, so we've got to get ourselves sort of back there. But in the day in which these words are spoken and recorded, there is a huge amount of tension between four sets of people. Two that are together and another two that are together, and Jesus is in the middle. Tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. Tax collectors were among the most hated people because they took money from the Jewish people on behalf of Rome. They, where they were known as traitors, and they were duplicitous, and they exploited and extorted money, and they made themselves rich. They had to give to Rome whatever Rome required, whatever in excess of that they taxed, they would keep for themselves. They employed a number of people who were basically uh, thugs and... Uh, people who imposed and carried out their tax collections, people who broke legs and the like. They were a bad set of people who supported the tax collectors. And they ran with a group of heavy partiers and people who had occupations that were not well thought of. Some of them were prostitutes and others were, you know, of uh, just questionable character. That's what sinner means. Jesus isn't saying here, the Bible's not saying here that only these were sinners and not all of us are. It's simply a category that was referred to a group of people who were thought of as less than, you know what I mean, right? So tax collectors and sinners form one, and they're being drawn to Jesus. And then outside that, there are the Pharisees and the scribes who are really looking in at this dinner party with Jesus and the sinners and tax collectors. And they're saying, can you believe that this man receives sinners and he actually eats with them? Because to eat with someone 
was to recognize them as being equal, is sort of have a meal and say, we can associate with each other. And no Pharisee would associate with a tax collector or a sinner, someone of questionable character, because to do so would be to impugn yourself. It would be to say, well, I'm I'm in too much close contact with someone who's questionable, and so it reflects poorly on me. So the Pharisees would not associate with either of these kinds of people. The Pharisees kept saying, I cannot believe that Jesus actually eats with people like this. The tension is great in the room, and this is where um, the polarization between the Pharisees and Jesus is coming to a head. The religious leaders, Pharisees, are absolutely indifferent about people like the tax collectors or those called sinners here. And it's what they liked least about Jesus is that he liked them and he hung out with them. And this is going to create the conflict that's going to come to its close at the end where the Pharisees and the scribes conjure together to put Jesus to death. It's because he loves all people, and all people are flocking to him, and they're moving away from the power struggle of the Pharisees and scribes. You got it? Now, with that in mind, <clears throat> these three parables are then told. The Pharisees keep their distance. They have no love for the lost. They have no love or appetite to be around people who are broken, and they have no self-awareness of their own lostness. But Jesus, what is it about Jesus that people whose lives are wrecked want to be around him? You ever thought about that? That's why we want to be around him, because we're a wreck. We want to be with someone who says, I love you as you are, but I wouldn't dream of leaving you there. Follow me. I will change your life. That was Jesus saying to these people, and they were they were drawing near to him, and it wasn't because he compromised his message to them, and that's why they wanted to be around him. He told them the truth. It wasn't because um, he excused their sin and said, oh, that's okay. Don't worry about that. Oh, you're immoral? Nah, no problem. No. He actually said, okay, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. He, he, he dealt with them where they were, as they were, but he loved them and welcomed them, and he's having a meal with them. And so before we look at the three parables, isn't it helpful just to think about one or two key verses in the Gospel of Luke, particularly chapter 19 and verse 10, which says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. This is a mission statement. If you could distill, why did Jesus come into the world? He came into the world because he so loved the world that he, God gave his son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish. He came to save the lost. And now these are going to be three stories about what's lost and how it's found. In another place we read, Jesus said, I haven't come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. Another purpose statement from Luke chapter 5 and verse 32. So whereas the Pharisees would not even associate with sinners, Jesus clearly says, I've come into the world because I love the world, and I'm seeking 
that which belongs to me, but it's currently lost. It's as if Jesus came into the world and said, all the world is mine, but all the world is lost. I'm coming to seek what is lost and bring it into my possession. I want my people. Now, not all the people wanted Jesus. And that's the categorization of the tax collectors and sinners and the scribes and the Pharisees. This is the conflict. Each of these parables are meant to awaken to them, all four audiences, what Jesus is about. So let's go to the first one. In verse 3, I'll read it. I'll put a couple verses up on the screen. But in verse um, 3, so he told them a parable. And the parable was, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has a lost one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. And so this is a story, and they're all listening, and they all know this part of culture in their day, that if you're a shepherd and you lose one, if you don't bring it back, you have to pay for it. So any shepherd is going to go after it and bring it back. And when he's found it, he's going to leave the 99 where they are because they're good. And he goes and he finds it and he brings it back. And when he finds it and comes back, he's rejoicing. And verse 6 says, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. And so you have a lost sheep and it gets found. Do you think it's happy? Sure. The one that's lost has joy. And the one who finds him, what does it say about him? He's rejoicing. And he can't keep it to himself, so he gets home and he calls his friends together. And what do they all do? They rejoice. And then verse 7 says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And suddenly Jesus tells the meaning of the parable. Remember, parable means to throw alongside. So he's telling something that they commonly know, shepherd, lost sheep. It's telling a greater story that even as the sheep is found, when someone who is lost is found by God, there is rejoicing in heaven. More than over the 99 who are just good on their own. That's the point. You have to let, okay, with parables, we don't press in every single meaning of every part of the parable, but there is, there is a group who are good in and of themselves. And then there's a group that's lost. And the shepherd goes after the lost because the group by themselves is good enough. We'll have tea with you. I don't really need you. But the sheep is lost, and the shepherd finds it, and he brings it home. The sheep is happy, the shepherd is happy, the friends are happy, and heaven is happy. This is a picture of the joy of God to save the lost. We're going to explain what the lost is in just a minute. But let's go to the second, lost. The second episode starts in verse 8 again. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, 
and seek diligently until she finds it. I like that the story includes uh, agrarian lifestyle that the men would have tracked with. And now he's going to bring the women in. And the women are saying, oh, yeah, if I lost a coin in my house, in my dowry, I'm not sure what it was. But if I lost a coin, I'd go looking for it. And I'd put a light on, and I'd get a broom, and I would sweep every corner of the house and wonder, I need to clean house more often. And, you know, whatever the case, until I found it. And then she did find it. And verse 9 says, and when she found it, she's happy. And she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So two illustrations, out in the field with sheep, in the house with a coin, but both the idea that something that belongs to the owner is absent, and then it's brought back into the ownership of the owner, and there is joy. And in both cases, the ultimate illustration is that what is found on earth, lost souls, brings joy in heaven to God and to the angels and to everybody who loves God, the friends of the one who searches. There's joy. Can I ask you a question? When you think about God, and if I were to say to you, how does God feel about you? How do you feel when you think about how God feels about you? Hmm. Don't you write that down. Just think this week. How does God feel about me? What would you write? Martin Luther once said, um, if I could imagine that God wasn't angry with me, I'd stand on my head for joy. And for a long time, that's the way he thought God thought about him as angry. I relate to that, right? I relate to saying, oh, I'm not doing enough. I always feel like God's unhappy with me. I wonder if I should do more. Oh, is God angry at me? Does... This parable told by Jesus is designed to say, our God is a happy God. How many of you believe God's happy? We should think about this. God is a joyous God. And when we get there, it's going to be about joy. Please think about this this week. Enter, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the... Anybody know the rest of that line? Okay. Okay. I guess not, but that's okay. It says, enter into the joy of your master. It's at the end where the sort of the judgment. And uh, how have I done? Oh, well done, now good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Can you imagine going to heaven, spending heaven with God, and it was entering into the drudgery of your master, into the disappointment of your master, is into the sadness of your master, into the... No. It's like God is a joyful God. The world is broken. He came to repair it so that broken people could be restored and experience joy. So please look again in verses 6 and 7 and 9 and 10 in your own Bible there. We'll just look at 9 and 10. So when she found it, she calls together her friends and say, Rejoice! 
I found the coin. And so I tell you, there is joy before the God, the angels of God, over one sinner that repents. Jesus really is telling the story that when people return to God and are brought home and repent and are found by God, there is joy. Let's go back to the setting. Jesus is saying there's joy. And who's on the sideline? There's Pharisees saying, no. I mean, they're, they're legalists. And joy in God is about grace. And legalists don't like grace. Legalists like laws. God is gracious. He takes the lost and brings it home. He takes the broken and heals it. He takes the one that's dead and brings it to life. This is the whole story of the parable. These are the two introductory parables, and now we'll go to the most famous of them. Starting in verse 11, there is the parable of the prodigal son. Warning. This parable is not about parenting. This parable is not about necessarily family life and rules of family life. This is a parable of Jesus talking about the mission of God that he came to seek and save the lost, and he's talking to a group of people who don't like the fact that Jesus loves the tax gatherers and sinners, and that he's reaching out to them. The other thing about parables is we're not able to press together every certain uh, application of every illusion that's in the parable, but you can see as you begin to read the parable something that came to life for me this week. I've probably taught this um, 10 times over the years, if not more. But I, I see something in this parable because I've thought a lot about Jesus being before the Pharisees. And they, uh, this was a strong shame and honor culture. And this parable is meant to arrest us with the shame of this parable and how God fits into it. Let me see if I can illustrate it. Let's start reading in verse 11. So Jesus said, there's a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that's coming to me. At that moment, the Pharisees would have heard these words of Jesus and have said, no. Let me read it again. There's a man who had two sons and one of the sons... The younger said to the father, give me the share of the inheritance that's coming to me. Why would they have said, no way? That's shameful. Because no son would go to his father and say, I want my inheritance, because the inheritance is only given most often when the father has died. And the older son would get two-thirds, and the other sons would get the remaining, and um, he wanted his now. 
And it was as if then the son is saying to his father, I'd rather you were dead. Could I have mine? We'll go on. And he divided the property with them. And the Pharisees said, no. What father would do that? What father would give to his son what he wanted? He divided it. And not many days later, the younger gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. Into a Gentile land? A Jew is going to leave Israel and go away to a far country and live among the Gentiles? And there he squandered his property. Wait, he took his property and he sold it? Short sale? Something less than its true value? Just to get the cash? And he squandered it in reckless living. What? Like with prostitutes, verse 30 says? You know, loose living? A, a Jewish boy does that? And when he had spent everything, no, he's out of money already? You get the sense of what's happening here? Like the Pharisees have to be saying, this is a terrible story. No son would do this to his father. No father would do it to his son. And no son would absolutely end up this way, turning it over into cash, spending all of his cash till he had nothing left, and then being without anything. And then when he had spent everything, verse 14, a severe famine arose in the country so that he began to be in need. Of course he did. Verse 15, so then he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And the Pharisee said, no, you now have a Jewish boy who gave up his inheritance and he's feeding pigs. You see how absurd this story is. It's like, it's a shame that this happens in this way. And when he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, no one gave him anything. All right, so you see this story is just like, I can just hear the Pharisees saying, this is a bad story. It's like terrible. And then it begins to resolve. Verse 17 says, and when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. He has rebelled against his father. He has squandered everything in rebellious living, in probable immorality, a total disdain for his father, for his family, for God. He is grasping for pleasure at every cost and all cost, more and more and more without the con thought of consequence. How will this impact my life? How will it impact my father's life? How will it impact my relationship with God? All he's saying to himself is, get me out of home. Let me go experience all that I can in life. I want to be free to do whatever it is I want to do. And someone has said that a man's worst difficulties begin when he is free to do whatever he pleases. And that's what happens here. Verse 17 says, he came to himself. Now listen, 
This is a touchy passage because we all know prodigals. And some of us have been them. And we love them now. And we pray for them. And I want you to just think about what's happening in this illustration without sort of transposing it completely on the prodigals that you know and love. Yet. Don't do that. Just think about this story of this elaborate rebellion against the Father. And now his world's coming apart. And um, he came to himself. And what that means is, when, when you're not right with God, you're not right with yourself. He's out of his mind in self-indulgence and seeking all the pleasure that he possibly can. And he comes to himself, and then he comes to God. Here's my definition of lostness. He's lost because he's living in God's world without God. And when you live without God, in whatever world you're in, you're lost. We are not meant to live without God. We cannot live without God. What we know now, though, is that God is a seeker after what is lost. This is the beautiful part of these parables. But he comes to his mind, and verse 18, he continues, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, I love those three, I will, I will, I will. I will arise, I will go, I will say. And what he is saying is, I have a change of mind, and I am going to make a decision of my life that I am going to turn around, and I'm going to change directions, and I am going to go do something that I is different than I've, what I've been doing. And that's called repentance. There's more joy in heaven when repentance happens. Why? He's, he's repenting. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to say to my father, continue, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now here in the story, the Pharisees finally say, yes. He said, let me be a hired servant so I can earn my way back into your favor and I will pay off the debt that I owe you. And the Pharisees say, finally, the story is starting to make sense. He's going to earn his way back to his father's blessing. But we continue. So he rose and went to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the Pharisee said, no. What father does that? What father picks up his tunic and lets his legs be seen and runs across the road to grab his son who has ruined his inheritance and kisses him and loves him? No. Jesus, no. That's what the father does. He's watching and he sees him and he embraces him. And he loves him. He kisses and kisses and kisses him. 
and the son breaks into his confession. Here it is in um, verse 22. But the father, um, verse 21, I'm sorry. And the son says to the father, I have sinned against you before heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. What's the next phrase that he said he was going to say? Make me one of your servants. And what happens? He doesn't say it. Because the father cuts him off. Don't say you're going to be one of my servants. I will take. I have sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I'm not worthy to be your son. Right, right, right. But you will not work your way back into my favor. And God loves him with a lavish kind of love and welcomes him back and kisses him and doesn't put him on probation, doesn't keep him at arm's length. He embraces him with tears and joy and says, you are my son, you are lost, you're found. And in an elaborate kind of, what, what will you say? Lavish grace. He says in verse 22, the father says to the servants, quickly get the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fatted calf, kill it, and let's eat and celebrate for my son who was dead is alive again. He was lost, is found. And they began to, everybody, celebrate joy. Why? Because he's back. This is an amazing twist, which in the context there, the Pharisees just are not getting that God is like this to people who ruin their lives. He's gracious and loving, and he welcomes them back, and he, he pours out grace that's undeserved. And what is not included is, here's your new status, servant. Not there. You're seeing a picture of what Jesus is trying to say about the reason I came into the world is to seek and to save that which is lost. And when I find them, I don't put them on probation for the way they've ruined their lives. I welcome them into my family as my own sons and daughter and love them with a full heart. And I forgive them completely. And I kill the fatted calf. And we have banquet together. I eat with them. It's beautiful, isn't it? And this is what it means to be found in Jesus. It's to be welcomed into his family without probation. You're forgiven. And there's joy in that. It's awesome. But not everybody feels the joy. And as the parable goes on, the older brother is, is a picture of the other group in the parable, not the forgiven ones, but the ones on the outside. So verse 25. When the older son was in the field, he came and drew near the house, and he heard the music and the dancing. And he called to one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Oh, your brother's home, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he received him back safe and sound. Good news. But, verse 28, he was angry, and he refused to go in. The older brother did not have joy in the recovery of his younger brother. He was angry. He hated his brother. 
and his father comes out of the house. As he went looking and then ran after the younger brother, he runs out of the house to the older brother too. Both brothers have the father running to him. And he's entreating him. But the older brother is angry and refused to go in. And who's he picturing in the episode? Picturing the Pharisees, right? Now, he's a prodigal, too. He says in verse 31, uh, I'm sorry, uh, he, he refused to go in, verse 29. Let me continue there. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came home, who devoured your pro property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. What's up with that? This brother is also a prodigal. Prodigal simply means to squander or to waste. So the younger brother squandered or wasted his life on loose living. And this one wastes his life on self-righteousness. And he is just absolutely suffocated with a judgmental attitude that he is perfect and he doesn't need any help. He is, he is a picture of the Pharisees, right? And the father says, well, listen... Um, verse 31, son, you're always with me. All that I have is, all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad because your brother who was dead is alive. He was lost and now he's found. It's right to celebrate and you can't do it. And here you have, again, verses 1 and 2 pictured, sinner, tax gatherer, scribes, Pharisee, intention. It's right there. Now, sorry, we have to get ready to close here, but both of these brothers are prodigals. And in the midst of the two brothers who wasted things, this is why Tim Keller calls God the prodigal God, because he wastes grace. He pours it out so lavishly like he... He spends it all and pours it out. He's the prodigal God who has enough grace to cover the sins of the younger brother and the sins of the older brother if he would take it, but he refuses to come in. This is a picture of God pouring out grace in such a lavish way that the grace of God is greater than the worst sins of the brothers and us. And he has enough grace to cover it so that we could receive it and think in our minds, he's not mad at us, he loves us, and he's rejoicing that we've returned with great joy. What do you think about when you think about God? Does he, you think of him as loving you because he's forgiven you? I want you to think that way about God. This truly is the way he thinks that the reason the parable is told is, all we like sheep have gone astray, but the Father is seeking. He's seeking. He's seeking. And when we do our part, 
I'm going to go tell God I've sinned against him and I've sinned against my family and I've, I've, I've broken his law and I, I give myself to you. I'm not worthy, but here I am. And God says, welcome home. This is the best story in the Bible. So good. What we don't have is what happened to the older brother. It's a missing part of the story. Most stories like this would end with a resolution of, well, what does the older brother do? The father says, no, you, you, you should come in. And we don't know. Well, one commentator said, I, I can't add this to the Bible. But if we were to add it, this is the way it would end. So take that not as adding to the Scripture anything, except in the story that is a parable, what does the older brother do in the scene in the first century? You ready? He picks up a club, and he beats his father to death. Chilling, right? What did they do to Jesus? I am the way, the truth, and the life. He who comes to me will never perish. I didn't come to be served, but to serve you and to give my life as a ransom. The one who comes to me, I'll never cast out. And what did they do? They took him to the cross, and they put him to death. This parable had an ending that would be something like that, that the one who is good and loving and offering life is actually put to death as the ultimate sign that he loves the tax gatherers, the sinners, and even the scribes and Pharisees, if they will have him. And you can be on either side of the prodigal experience, self-righteous or wild living, and there's still a Savior who says, come on home, I will forgive you, welcome you in. If you're praying for a prodigal today, it is what you pray. God, please find them. Let them hear your voice. They're not listening to my voice, but could they hear your voice? Please help them hear your voice. You are the good shepherd. You're calling. You're welcoming. Let's pray together. Lostness is living in the Father's world without the Father. If you're away from God today and you've heard something of this story, I just want you to know that the Father wants you to come home. He's watching. What must you do? You must turn and say, Lord, I, I'm coming as a sinner, saved only by your grace. The prodigal conjures up all kinds of feelings in us, God, but I pray that the Holy Spirit will shape our minds to think you're the God who seeks after the lost. You, you call the lost to yourself and then cover the lost 
with enough mercy that there's nothing left to do except celebrate being home. And all around us today, throughout this city and this county, there are people living in a Father's world without the Father. And you're looking for them. And we cannot help in our own thought about living into the future that it, your mission must be our mission. We, we are here to search for those who are lost and looking to come home. So let the mission of Christ be the mission of our church, be the mission of each of us, that, that we're there to point people to the one who carries sheep on his shoulder back to the fold, who recovers the coin and saves its value, and who finds the rebellious or self-righteous brother and brings them back into the family and the true banquet of Christ. Lord, we just pray you'll do this and shape our minds as we think about it. Give us a vision that your mercy, your mercy, your mercy is enough. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.